It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, the G20 prepares to meet in South Korea. But will the summit be a train wreck? President Obama prepares to return to Indonesia, a country he once lived in as a child, and the new Anglo-French deal on defence. But we start with the G20. With me is Chris Giles, the FT's economics editor. Chris, people do seem a little worried about this G20 summit. The countries don't seem to have agreed on the key issues with just a few days to go before they assemble in Seoul. I think that's right, and I think when you stand back, there is quite a problem out there in in G20 land, but I think the, the sort of the news we're going to get next Friday will be very positive because we know a lot of things have happened uh, over the past six months since the last summit. So there will be a rubber stamping of the Basel Agreement and bank capital regulations and a whole other bunch of financial regulations. South Korea is going to get some of its global safety net. There's been a, an agreement on international monetary fund reform. So all of these sort of slightly peripheral issues have been agreed. So at the worst, they'll all come together and say, look at all these great things we've achieved. And that's probably the most likely because what they haven't achieved, of course, is agreement on how to get a more balanced global economy. And that's where there is, as as you suggested, quite a lot of disagreement. Now, part of the art of summary, of course, is to come out saying, uh, you know, we've had a productive meeting and, as you say, coming up with a whole list of things that they have agreed. But... How serious are the disagreements? I don't want to be relentlessly negative, but there is this issue over the rebalancing of the global economy. In previous G20 summits, they more or less just avoided discussing it because it was so sensitive. How do you think it'll play this time? Well, everyone can agree on the objective. Everyone wants strong, stable and balanced global growth. I mean, that's that's easy. It's the, the difficulty is on what policy tools need to be enacted in different countries to achieve that objective. And that's where the US clearly would like China to do something to its exchange rate. China and a lot of emerging markets are now very concerned about the US flooding the world with cheap money. And uh, countries such as Germany are very concerned about suggestions that you have limits and targets for current account deficits, which they say is beyond their control. So how are the, the, the countries lining up in this struggle between the US and China over currency, you mentioned that there's concern from people about the impact of American so-called quantitative easing and the flooding of cheap money. So is there perhaps more sympathy for the Chinese position or do people just feel they're caught in the middle between these two giant economies? I think that a lot of people feel they're caught in the middle. They can quite see America's argument that China, uh, by ensuring its currency stays weak or by by managing its currency uh, is causing problems for America because we need global demand and we need Americans. America can only get rid of its current account deficit, its trade deficit, if it can export more, and that's difficult in the current environment. But equally, they feel very, very threatened by America's actions because America says, frankly, well, if other countries aren't going to help us, we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure we get out of this mess ourselves. And if that means $600 billion, which was uh, this week's number, or another one thousand billion or two thousand billion of printing money well they're going to do it 
So how do you think it's going to come out in the end? Will will they just avoid the issue? Will they will they fudge it, uh, or will they have a, a, a public row? I don't think they'll have a public row. I think that's as you said, the art of symmetry is to make sure you keep the train going or keep the you know keep bicycling away. So I think the most likely thing is to avoid the difficult policy questions and set in train a bunch of processes that will keep these issues live and see whether things can get better over the next year or so. So we're likely to see a great focus on the objective without numerical targets. I think the four percent limits are not really going to be agreed. But the objective of more balanced growth, all countries can um, sign up to that. China is quite happy to say it would like to see its current account uh, uh, surplus fall in Germany is increasingly making these sorts of noises too. Uh, So they'll all sign up to the broad objectives, which, quite frankly, countries have signed up to going back many, many, many years. Of course, it's always easy to sign up to something that has no practical effect. So I suppose you can say, yes, of course, we'd like our current account deficit to come down because it doesn't actually compel you to do anything. And you can blame other people if it doesn't happen. (laughs) Very Um, good. So finally, just give us an assessment of how you think the G20 as an institution is doing, because, of course, the G20 summits were the first big international institutional response to the global economic crisis There was a lot of hope invested in the G20, and after the London summit, I think just about six months into the crisis, people felt it was doing a pretty good job. I think now the uh, optimism, which was actually at its height in Washington before the London summit in the autumn of 2008, when we we really were in a terrible situation, um, is beginning to disappear because the age-old conflicts and difficult trade-offs are re-emerging. So what you hear a lot in private are, are... in the international sphere is the G20. Well, that's just, it's too big. You can't have a proper discussion at the G20. G7, well, that was much better for that sort of thing. But obviously, we didn't have the right countries around the table. If only we could have something like a G11, you know, the G7 plus China and India and Brazil or something like that. That that's the, that seems to be the nub of it, that there is a feeling that that is the optimal grouping of nations the but it's is, not possible. Yeah, you can't start kicking countries out, can you? It's no. just too difficult. But it means that for the G20, where, we, where we're left with, is a rather unwieldy meeting where people read prepared, prepared texts and you, you have to go to the, the preparatory meetings where is actually where the work gets done and the summits themselves are not, not likely to suddenly find a solution to difficult problems. Chris Giles, thank you very much indeed. A visit to the G20 summit in South Korea might come as something of a relief for President Obama after the drubbing that the Democrats took in the midterm elections. But, as well as visiting Korea, the President will pay high-profile trips to India, as well as, finally, a long-delayed trip to Indonesia, a country where he once lived as a child. Joining me on the line from the Indonesian capital, Jakarta, is the FT's Anthony Deutsch. Anthony, give us a bit of the history of this much-delayed trip, because everyone's been looking forward to President Obama going back to a country he lived in as a child, but... He kept having to cancel the trip, didn't he? That's right. Everybody's been looking forward to it for so long that they're not quite sure whether or not they should believe it's going to happen this time either. He lived here for around four years as a boy from when he was about six years old to ten years old. And he went to an Indonesian school where he learned to speak Bahasa Indonesia. And he is actually very fondly remembered by all his teachers and, and classmates who I've just spent the past couple of days meeting and chatting with about what type of a character he was. And they're all, of course, very excited that he's coming. Um, They had been preparing lots of festivities at the schools and in his old neighborhood. But with his, um, his busy schedule, he has cut it short now. 
and he's planning to meet with the Indonesian president, Susilo Bangbang Yudhoyono, and uh, they will be discussing mainly uh, the importance of, of Indonesia for the United States' war on terror as it seeks allies and, and its efforts to kind of rebuild damaged relations with the Muslim world. We won't get the longed-for television pictures of, of the president meeting his, uh, his old mates from school in Jakarta. Unfortunately not, and they're all, they're all rather disappointed about that, actually. He lives in a neighborhood what's now um, in of downtown Jakarta. At the time, it didn't have paved roads. Uh, some of it didn't have electricity, and water was retrieved from a well. So um, it, it really is quite a different place to the, the mega city that is now the, the huge, sprawling city of, of around 15 million people. President Obama went to uh, two schools in Jakarta. The first one was a Catholic school, and at the time his mother used to uh, give English classes in the house around the corner from the school. I actually visited today with um, with a neighbor of his who remembers Obama as a, as a naughty boy who used to run around in the streets barefoot wearing a sarong and basically getting up to no good with all the other boys in the neighborhood. They have lots of very fond memories of him speaking Indonesian, eating Indonesian food, and basically doing everything that a, a boy in the, in the kampung, as they call it, which is the, the Indonesian word for, for neighborhood. But a lot of those, those memories I think he was hoping to share with his two daughters and his wife, Michelle, who had initially been planning to, to come with him. Now he will just be coming with, with his wife. The main kind of policy push will be when he visits the largest mosque in, in Southeast Asia, in Jakarta, when he will, he will meet with the imam. And he is also expected to give a speech to the Indonesian people, which will build on this, this speech he gave in Cairo last year when he really is trying to, to start to fresh relations between the West and the Muslim world. Finally, Anthony, Obviously, the, the whole aspect of the war on terror and relations with the world's most populous Muslim nation is, are incredibly important. But, of course, Indonesia is a big power in Asia, and uh, things are a little unsettled there with the uh, tough relations between the U.S. and China. Where does Indonesia fit into the sort of geopolitical picture in, in Asia, and how will the U.S. be playing that? Well, the, the history goes back quite a long way. Indonesia has had a very bumpy relationship with communist China. The Americans um, played uh, a role helping Indonesia. A, a lot of anti-communists here are very happy with, with the Americans for their contribution in that. And, and America, of course, saw Indonesia at the time as a strategically very important region, rich in natural resources and, of course, very well located geographically within Asia. Now things, of course, are very different nowadays. China is a more important trading partner than the United States. At the same time, the United States has been trying to play catch-up in Southeast Asia and has been building on some of those ties, trying to restore both military and increase economic ties, as well as pull Indonesia into its efforts to promote moderate Islam in the world. Anthony Deutsch in Jakarta, many thanks and enjoy the Obama visit. Finally, back to Europe and what's being called the new Entente Cordiale, a deal for much deeper defence cooperation signed this week between Britain and France. Josh Noble talked to the FT's defence correspondent, James Blitz, and asked him why David Cameron and Nicolas Sarkozy, who haven't always got on terribly well, have decided to do the deal. 
I think they've come together basically because they have to. This isn't that they've both got some great political vision of bringing Britain and France together for European reasons. It's more to do with the fact that in both countries we've significantly cut defence budgets. And as a result, they've both realised that if we're going to keep some of the capabilities we have, we're going to have to share them. So they've come to deals on a range of things like coordinating when their aircraft carriers are going to be in refit or deployment, coming together on a really important certainly symbolic area of cooperation, which is the testing of nuclear warheads through simulation, through computers, which saves them an enormous amount of money, and they're also doing quite a lot in the field in terms of their land forces. Mm. I mean, this sounds um, potentially quite substantive. I mean, does this involve either side surrendering any sovereignty? I mean, this is something the French treasure so much, and I, I suppose we, we in Britain do as well, uh, any surrender of sovereignty in this No, I don't think so. You're right, it's treasured by both. But if you look very carefully at the detail, what's happening here is that there's a great deal more of what's called interoperability, to use the jargon phrase, bringing equipment and uh, capabilities on both sides together so they operate together, rather than one country taking over everything and putting its flag on the top. So, for example, if you look at the issue with aircraft carriers... In 2020, Britain will have one operational aircraft carrier. France will have one operational aircraft carrier. Just one each. Just one each. So the result is that you've got to have refits for aircraft carriers and put them in dock. That takes a long time. It's about a third of a whole carrier's life. And so what they've decided is that when the British one is in refit or the French one is in refit, they'll make sure the other one is operational. Now, that's what they're basically doing. Now, they're being very careful to say we're not going to be in a situation where if the British want to send the French carrier to the Falklands, it's got to go there. There will be a right of veto. But they're basically offering up to the main international bodies, the UN, the EU, NATO, an Anglo-French capability in that area. That's an example of what they're doing. But in these times of austerity, I mean, there's no alternative. Europe is having to enter a new period of defence cooperation, is it? That's absolutely right. And it really matters for Britain and France because they are by far and away the two biggest players in European defence, spending more than half of all the money that's spent on European defence between the two of them. And they've realised, because they've had these big budget cuts, that it's far better to work together, basically, if they possibly can, without giving up sovereignty. But, uh, again, going back to the the fact the French and the the British have had this very prickly uh, years of relations between the two countries, um, are we going to see a closer foreign policy between between the two countries? I mean, that would be unprecedented in itself as well. I don't think so. I think the British and the French have huge differences in some areas. For example, Cameron and Sarkozy have very different views of Turkish accession to the European Union, for instance, with Cameron very much encouraging it and Sarkozy very much against There are obviously foreign policy differences elsewhere, for example, on the European Union budget, where the British in the next year or two are going to be wanting to maintain their budget rebate. France doesn't want that. On the other hand, the French want to maintain the common agricultural policy at the levels it's at. The British won't want that. So there are big differences. The point here about this defence thing is that they have to do this to maintain viable defence forces. And so they are going to have to try and contain some of the foreign policy differences a little bit if they're not going to throw this whole thing out. That was Josh Noble talking to James Blitz in London and ending this week's podcast. I'd also like to thank Chris Giles here in the studio and Anthony Deutsch in Jakarta. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.